Most gracious and heavenly Father, this truly is a, an amazing passage that reveals so much about who you are, the great God of provision that you've shown yourself to be, a God of great mercy and love, but also a God who commands obedience and calls us to trust you and to obey you entirely. This is not an easy command at times, and we so often fall short. But I ask that as we hear your word today, as we see the faithfulness of Abraham, that we too would see you as being completely trustworthy, and therefore we would obey you, no matter what the cost may be. You are a God who is worthy of all blessing, honor, and glory. You are worthy of our whole lives. Reveal it to that, that to us this day. Use me, um, one who has fallen so short of this call of obedience. Um, use me to bring forth the word to your people here. And help us to truly be changed by your word. Holy Spirit, please go before the hearers now that they would hear your word um, and they would be changed by it. We pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, so Genesis 22. Um, we are going to examine this most famous and most glorious passage of Scripture. Um, again, one that you've all probably heard, probably heard in Sunday school classes growing up. Um, and this is the story of Abraham's great trial to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. The narrative here in Genesis really is told as an amazing story, and it was written as such to the original Jewish audience. Um, but yet, unlike many of our favorite stories today, whether it be your favorite sci-fi movie or rom-com or even the greatest story outside the Bible, Lord of the Rings, um, this story is true. And not only is it true, but it's divinely inspired by God. And thus, it is profitable, as First uh, Timothy 3.16 says, or Second Timothy 3.16, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we want to hear it as God's word and be changed by it. This story examines one of the main characters of the Christian faith, Abraham, in his final and most difficult trial. And in vivid detail, it reveals the great trust that Abraham has in God, which in turn enables and strengthens him to obey him regardless of the cost. Moses' original audience in the desert would have seen this story as a call to be like their father Abraham, the faithful one. And my hope is that you would not hear this merely as an encouraging or captivating story, although it is, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would see God as faithful and thus be moved to live in complete and total obedience to him. We're going to examine this passage by looking at, one, the test of faith, two, the faithful provision, and three, the faithful reward. The theme of this sermon is simple. God is faithful and provides. Therefore, we are to trust and obey him. God is faithful and he provides. And therefore, we are to trust and obey him. Now, whenever we do topical preaching like this, it's always a little difficult because we lose a little bit of context. We're, going, we're jumping right into the middle of the book of Genesis. Unlike Revelation, where we've been in it for several months now, we kind of know what the, what the main theme of the book is um, about dragons, beasts, and weird-looking creatures. Um, no, we, we understand what the theme of the book of Revelation is. It's a call to um, persevere in the midst of the hardship, knowing Christ is king and he's coming back to restore all things. We understand the theme of Revelation when we jump into a book like right now, right in the middle of Genesis, we have a hard time quite understanding and grabbing that. So before we jump into the text, I'm just going to give you a few contextual notes about Genesis. Genesis is a book written by Moses to Israel with the primary goal to reveal who God is and how mankind is supposed to relate to and worship God. The book reveals his demand for obedience as well as his faithful provisions for his chosen ones. Genesis tells the story of God choosing a people for himself, starting with Abraham, and that would ultimately lead to the Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent, as told in Genesis chapter 3, and restore mankind to God. God's faithful, faithfulness and provision is a theme that is constantly reiterated throughout the book. So as we examine that passage, have that theme and idea of God's faithfulness, provision, calling a people for himself, and the promise of a Messiah. Keep that in mind as we go through this passage. So with that, let's jump right into the text. Point number one, the test of faith. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. 
We start off in verse 1. We read, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So whenever we see something like after these things, we have to ask, what things? What came before this passage? So this whole story comes sometime after the fulfilled promised birth of Isaac, the son of promise, who would be the one by which Abraham would be made into a great nation. But how did we get to this point? How did we get to where we are right now? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to leave his homeland so that he could make a mighty nation out of him. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham in the, that great vision of the smoking firepot passing through the carcasses of the, of the animals that were sacrificed, and he promised to give him offspring. He promised to give that offspring what is later known as the promised land. And yet the years continued on and on for Abraham, and there was still no son. So in Genesis chapter 16, Abraham takes matters into his own hands and has a child with Hagar, his wife Sarah's slave, and he is named Ishmael. But God promises a son to be born to Sarah. This son, as described in Genesis chapter 17, is the one through whom God would establish the covenant, and it will be an eternal covenant by which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in Genesis chapter 21, Isaac, the son of promise, is born to Abraham and Sarah at the ripe ages of 190. Just let that sink in, parents. 100 years old and 90 years old. After the birth of Isaac... Abraham's son Ishmael and his mother Hagar are cast out, thus leaving Abraham with just Isaac to fulfill the covenant promise that God had made. Even though the last chapter leaves off, uh, chapter 21, Isaac seemingly being quite young after he had just been weaned, chapter 22 picks up several years later with Isaac being in at least his mid-teens, some say 20s and even his 30s. Years have passed since Isaac's birth, and Abraham may have thought that his days would finally end in peace after all the trials and adventures that he had been on. And yet his greatest and final trial was just about to begin. The trial that would test whether or not Abraham truly trusted that God would be faithful to his covenant as he promised. So after all these things, here we are. God came to Abraham and he tested Abraham. If you're reading an older translation, it might say God tempted Abraham, yet this was not temptation to sin it was rather a trial to see if Abraham would be truly faithful. A better translation would be, God tested Abraham. We know that God can't tempt anyone to sin, as we see in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, but rather he tests the faith of his chosen ones to draw them closer to him and reveal whether or not they will truly be obedient to him. God, being omniscient and already knowing the outcome, didn't need to find out if Abraham would be obedient, but rather he tests him to prove Abraham's faith that he may be a faithful testimony for generations to come. God would use Abraham's faith also as the means by which he would bless him with the final covenant promise, as we'll see in just a little bit. It's very important to realize the text makes it abundantly clear this is a test. What God is about to ask of Abraham, he has no intention to go through with, but is a means in which he's using to test Abraham's obedience to see if he truly trusts God. The narrator reveals the truth of the test to the reader, but to Abraham, it is nothing short of an agonizing reality. So God calls Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. And immediately we see Abraham responding to God's call, ready to serve and obey him in any way. There is no hesitation, but rather an immediate eagerness and readiness to serve God no matter what he asks. Abraham trusts God, and thus he is ready to submit to him at all times. We look at verse 2. He, that's the Lord, says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So here, the greatest trial for Abraham is laid before him. He is told what he must do in excruciating detail. And I want you to notice the great emphasis placed on every single word that shows the weight of the sacrifice that God is requiring of Abraham. Notice the repeated emphasis on your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Every word spoken of the son whom he loves so dearly strikes to the very heart of Abraham. It strikes him to his core to intentionally magnify the extremity of the trial he's about to face. The request comes as a, as a complete shock. It is brief, to the point. It cuts to his heart with no explanation 
why. The reference here to the only son is not to discount Ishmael, whom Abraham already had. It was also his son. But to emphasize that Isaac was the son of promise. The only legitimate son born to Sarah, his wife. He is the only true son. But more importantly, this is the son of the covenant. God makes it very clear in Genesis 17 that it will be Isaac, not Ishmael, who will be the son that will bring forth the eternal promised covenant. From Isaac would the everlasting offspring come, not Ishmael. So God calls him to take your only son Isaac to go to the land of Moriah, in which increases the difficulty of the test, because as we see in a few verses from now, Moriah is at least three days away. It's at least three days away, giving Abraham agonizing time to dwell on what is being asked of him. This is not a quick and easy obedience, but rather a long, agonizing obedience with lots of time to think the matter over and many opportunities and temptations to turn back along the way. John Calvin said this, God does not require him to put his son to death immediately, but compels him to revolve this execution in his mind during three whole days that in preparing to sacrifice his son, he may still more severely torture all of his own senses. This will require much time and contemplation and will require a long obedience. God calls him to take his son to go to the land of Moriah and to offer him as a burnt offering. And here is the pinnacle of the trial. God was not asking Abraham to send his son away, or to even quickly put him to death, as if that would be any easier, but rather to brutally end the life of his own beloved son with his own hands by the means of a burnt offering. Now, burnt offerings don't mean much to us today. We don't go out to Safeway and buy a lamb to go make a burnt offering. But this was a very gruesome process. This sacrifice is pre-Levitical law, so it varies a bit from what we might see later on in the Torah But from what we know, the person conducting the sacrifice would slay the animal, bleed them out, cut up the body in pieces, and then consume the whole thing in flames. And this is what God is commanding Abraham to do to his son Isaac. He's commanding him to take his only beloved son, to slay him, to bleed him out, to carve him up, and then to burn his remains. It's a horrifying picture. It's a horrific process in which he'll be killing his son. And as he does this, as he kills his son, Abraham would know that the promise of the covenant was being destroyed as well. Remember, unlike Ishmael, Isaac is the covenant son. So if Isaac is dead, then the promise of the covenant dies with him. There will be no blessed offspring. There will be no covenant people. All those blessings die with Isaac. And they burn up before Abraham's very eyes. As one commentator said, on him, that's Isaac, all Abraham's hopes are riding. To lose him would be to lose the promise of the covenant. What we see is a test not just of who Abraham loves more, God or Isaac, but if Abraham believes that God will be faithful to his promise. Will he remain faithful to the words that he spoke concerning Isaac? This is the test laid before Abraham. This is what he's called to do. As unimaginable as it is, God had commanded it, therefore Abraham had to obey. Now even though we already know the outcome of the story, we must remember Abraham's a sinful man. He has fleshly desires, he's tempted, he has his own doubts. And though he is faithfully obedient, the whole process was undoubtedly completely and utterly agonizing and unbearable for him. He was in a battle between faith in the goodness and promise of God and his deep love for his son. He battles trusting that God will provide and be faithful against his own fleshly doubts and desires, and yet he persists in faithful obedience. The details and the pace of this narrative reveal just how difficult the trial was. Carefully notice all of the intricate details that make this trial even more excruciating, and I want you to pay extra close attention to the slowing of pace of the story, especially as it leads up to the point of Isaac and Abraham going up the mountain. So we continue in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
So from here, what we see with Abraham is immediate obedience to God's call. He doesn't linger around. He doesn't wait a few weeks. He doesn't go and try and seek counsel for those who will give him different advice, saying, hey, I heard this from God. Is this a good idea? No. He responds to God's excruciating trial in immediate obedience. The immediacy of his obedience reveals a trust in God. Because he simply trusts God, he obeys him. Verse 4 and 5, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So three days have passed on their travels, and Abraham to this point still remains obedient. But can you imagine the thoughts during those three days that must have been swirling in his mind? Could you imagine, why would God ask me to do such a thing? This was the son Sarah and I have been waiting for all these many years. Is he going to die now? Is God going to take him from me now? How will I tell Sarah and look her in the eyes after I've slaughtered her great joy and precious son? She'll think I'm insane. She'll curse me. She'll leave me. Most of all, how will God fulfill the covenant through the son of promise if he's dead? How will God be faithful? You know, with all these thoughts and many more swirling about in Abraham's mind, he remains faithful. He remains faithful in obedience. Abraham tells the men to stay back, lest they realize what's about to happen and they seek to intervene and stop Abraham. Lest they think this guy's out of his mind. He's going to kill his own son and they try and stop him. This command for them to stay back reveals that Abraham is fully intent on obeying God and doesn't want to risk anything, any intervention or temptation to relent from the sacrifice. And then he says this, I and the boy will worship and will come again to you. Now there's much debate as to what Abraham meant here, but I think it's clear from the rest of the passage in the New Testament references that Abraham trusted that in some way God will provide and both he and Isaac will return from the time of sacrifice together. Though, as Calvin suggested, he was tempted to lie to the servants or even disobey God outright, he continued to put his trust solely in the Lord. Verses 6 through 8, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they both went of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. The discourse here is intentionally tender and emotion-filled to reveal the difficulty and pain of the trial. Abraham lays the wood for the offering upon Isaac. Isaac is made to carry the burden and wood of his own sacrifice while Abraham holds the knife and fire, the very instruments he would use to bleed out his son then consume his flesh. How trying for him to hold such instruments of death to the one that he loved so dearly. It really is an amazing picture we see here. Isaac is carrying his deathbed and Abraham is carrying the executioner's tools. And yet he persevered in obedience to God, trusting in God's faithfulness. And now we come to the point where now Isaac and Abraham are all alone, walking in silence together up to the place of God's direction. And then out of the silence, Isaac speaks, My father. He utters these cutting words of endearment that would surely pierce the heart deeply of any parent, most especially Abraham, who knew what he would do to his son in just a matter of hours. Abraham responds, here I am, my son. Endearing speech is the only response that Abraham can offer. He is ready to respond in love in the same way he responded to God, here I am. And notice the terms of endearment both here and in verse 8. My son, all while thinking, no doubt, my son, my beloved son, the promised son, who am I love, and now I must slay. Isaac, being older, he understands the process of the sacrifice. And he notices that the most crucial element of the sacrifice is missing, the sacrificial lamb. And so he asks Abraham, where is the lamb? Where is it? And Abraham must give a response. Should he tell him what God's commanded? Should he lie? God will provide for himself 
the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In his response to Isaac, as in verse 5, we see Abraham, even amid this trial, truly believing that God will in some way provide. He isn't sure how or by what means, but he believes that God is faithful, and thus he obeys. And here's what we see together, is that they, Abraham and Isaac, go up the mount together. Abraham trusting God and his faithfulness, and Isaac trusting Abraham, his father. Verse 9 and 10, When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Here we reach the climax of the story. Abraham, to this point, had faithfully obeyed God through the agonizing journey, the racing thoughts, the temptation to turn back, the dialogue with his son. It all leads to this moment right here. Will he remain obedient or will he give in to his own desires? Does he truly believe that God will provide and be faithful to his covenant? Abraham builds the altar upon which his son will be slaughtered. He is creating his son's deathbed, and yet he remains obedient. He then takes his beloved son and he binds him, likely as a safe measure to ensure the sacrifice goes through and that Isaac doesn't flee. He binds his son. Abraham wasn't taking any chances of anything going wrong. Yet Isaac, like Abraham to God, obeys his father's command and willingly offers himself up as a sacrifice. There is no sign of resistance in the text. Surely Isaac, being a young man of strength, could have overpowered his aged father. Yet he does not, but he follows his father's example of complete and total obedience. Abraham In agony, lays his beloved son, his only son, Sarah's joy, the son of promise from whom the covenant will be fulfilled, he lays him down upon the altar. The same son he laid down as a baby in his bed, he now lies down to die at his own hands. The hands that nurtured Isaac and stroked his face as a child would now be the hands that held down his head to cut his throat. It is an unimaginable scene. I was so overcome with emotion as I was studying this As I was preparing the sermon, James came and sat right next to me, and he was playing as I was preparing this. I looked at him, and I couldn't imagine the thought of this. It is unimaginable what Abraham is being called to do here. Yet in total obedience to God, he was ready to kill his son and also kill the covenant. If there was any time for Abraham to doubt or hesitate, this would have been the moment right here. And yet he remained obedient and trusted God to provide Then, resolute to obey God to the end, Abraham reaches out. He grabs the knife to put his beloved one to death. But just when the death blow to Isaac was imminent, he is stopped by the angel of the Lord. Abraham had proven himself faithful. He had proven himself faithful even at the cost of his own son's life and the cost of the covenant. He was found faithful to God, trusting him that he would be faithful and provide accordingly. God tests Abraham's faith to see whether or not he will, one, remain obedient, regardless of the cost, and two, trust that God will provide and be faithful to the covenant he made. This call to trust and obedience was not exclusive to Abraham. God has always called his people to faithfully obey him, regardless of the cost. With Israel in the desert, it was a call for his people to completely trust and be wholly obedient to him. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, Deuteronomy 6.5. The call is the same for us today. We are called to total and complete obedience to God. In other words, faith must be ultimately found in God alone, trusting him for who he is. Yet if we're being honest, this level of extreme obedience seems impossible to us. How was it that Abraham was able to be so obedient that he would give his only son to death? We must remember, too, he was a sinful man. He was not perfect. He was not above what we experience in sinful flesh. 
And though he was obedient, it'd be foolish for us to think that he did not agonize through every single moment of it and that he did not have temptations and doubts to turn back along the way. So I ask again, how was he able to do it? How could Abraham be so faithful to obey God? Abraham was able to obey God because he knew who God is. He knew God. He knew God is not a liar, and if God promised that through Isaac, Abraham's offspring would come, then God was going to be faithful to bring offspring through Isaac. He'd be faithful to that work. He ultimately believed that God would, in some way, provide and stay true to his promised covenant. After all, the covenant was made by God. It was made by God himself, and therefore, he could not break it, for he is a faithful God and he is true to his word. Abraham's obedience is rooted in a true knowledge of God's trustworthy character. Abraham was able to faithfully obey God on Mount Moriah because he knew that God would either provide a substitute for Isaac in his place or even raise him up from the dead if necessary. God, by necessity of who he is and the promise he made, would have to provide in some way. It's not an option. To not do so would be in direct contradiction to God's character and nature as a God of truth and faithfulness. Abraham believed this, and thus he was able to be obedient, even to the most extreme command from God. It didn't make the trial any less agonizing, but it strengthened him so that he was able to persevere in the midst of it. Abraham's obedience was fueled by his trust and knowledge of God. We read in Hebrews eleven nineteen, which gives even greater insight here to Abraham and his faith. We read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, in whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. The author of Hebrews says that Abraham was able to be obedient because he had great faith in God, believing that even if Isaac was slain upon that altar, even if he went through and killed his son, God would bring him back to life because God could not lie nor go back on the covenant he had made with him. Abraham is a magnificent example of total trustworthy obedience to God. He is an example for us all. God's plan from the beginning was for his people to be obedient to him. In the garden, throughout the history of Israel, in the history of the church to today, God calls all to wholehearted submission to him. We were designed to simply trust and obey God. Yet ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the first act of disobedience from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have been unable to obey God. Our first parents, even in the garden, disobeyed God, not trusting that he was able to provide what was best for them, for they desired to be like God. They did not trust that God had their best intention in mind. And thus, in the first act of disobedience and distrust, they ate from the forbidden tree. And my friends, we do the exact same thing. We do not think God is trustworthy, nor do we believe that he will do what is best for us. And thus, so often, we do not trust or obey him as Lord and God. God, in his word, has given us every reason to trust and obey him and his commands. He is faithful and good and holy, and his very being demands our obedience, and his faithful character should cause us to trust in him entirely. Yet every time we sin, we're not trusting God, but rather we model our first parents, Adam and Eve. Abraham was able to obey God when it cost him everything because he knew God and trusted him by faith. And as Christians, we're called to do the same. We're called to trust and obey God in all situations. But if we're going to be honest, our lives at times reflect a greater disobedience rather than obedience, especially when obeying God will be costly to us. So how can we trust God like Abraham did? How can we come to know and believe that God will provide for us, especially when our obedience is costly? Point number two, the faithful provision. Let's look at verse 11 through 14. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we jump back into our story. Abraham has tied his son down. He's laid him down on the altar. He's taken the knife, ready to cut his throat. And just as Abraham was about to commit the final act of obedience to slay his son, God calls out to him going, Abraham, Abraham. He calls to him urgently and notice the double repetition of the name Abraham, unlike before. He repeats his name twice because it's an urgent call, revealing that if he had waited just a moment longer, Isaac would have perished. Abraham was right at the point of slaughtering his son. And so God calls him in urgency so that he would not go through and that Isaac would be spared. One commentator said it well. On the human side, the ultimate sacrifice is faced and willed. On the divine side, not a vestige of harm is permitted and not a nuance of devotion is unnoticed. Abraham still in the same readiness to God before, answers him, here I am. Even amid the greatest darkness imaginable, Abraham replies with the same humble submission to God, here I am. And in verse 12, God, well pleased with Abraham, protects Isaac, not allowing any harm to come upon the son of promise. He makes it abundantly clear as he calls out to him. He's saying, I'm calling the whole thing off. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. No harm should come upon Isaac. God then reveals to Abraham that the whole trial was a test to see whether or not he truly trusted God above all else to the point that he was willing to sacrifice even that which was most dear to him, his beloved covenant son. Now, it wasn't that God didn't know if Abraham would obey. He's all-knowing. But rather, it was a test of Abraham's trust that God would be faithful to his promise. Did Abraham trust God? Would he obey when it cost him his son and the very covenant of himself? Yes, he would, because he knew that God was completely worthy of full obedience, and he was trustworthy in all of his promises, and thus Abraham obeys. Abraham trusting God drove him to complete and total obedience, even when it would cost him everything. God, being a God who is faithful to his promises, delivers Isaac from death, and provides a ram as the burnt offering instead. And Abraham, likely with great relief, offers the ram in the place of his son. God could not and would not go back on the promise that he made to Abraham. God had promised that by Isaac, Abraham would have many offspring. If Isaac were to die, God would have been lying and proven wrong. But because God is faithful to his word, to his promise, he provides a ram a substitute in the place of Isaac. And then Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. A substitute was made. Isaac was spared. God provided. And thus he names the place in memorial of God's faithful provision. The name we often hear today is Jehovah Jireh, but it is more accurately Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh Yireh is a combination of the Hebrew name God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, Yahweh, or I am, along with the Hebrew word yireh, which means will provide. In other words, one could say it means I am will provide. He is the God who provides, Yahweh yireh. God tested Abraham's faith and made provision to keep the covenant that he had established. And God's faithful provision is ever on display in the life of his people. Ever since the creation of man, God has proven himself to be faithful to provide. In the garden, pre-fall, God provided Adam and Eve with everything they needed to thrive and flourish in his creation. After the fall, in his mercy, he continued to provide for them by supplying clothing to hide their nakedness and shame. He provided deliverance to Noah in the ark when he flooded the earth to preserve mankind. He provided food and provision to Jacob's family in the midst of the severe famine that threatened to wipe them out and kill Abraham's descendants. 
He provided deliverance to the people of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians and provided them with the blessed promised land. He even remained faithful to his people when they rebelled against him time and time and time again in the book of Judges by providing them with judges to deliver them from their enemies. He provided for his people by setting a king before them to rule in peace, prosperity, and establish a mighty kingdom. Even in Israel's exile, he watched over them and he provided for his chosen ones so they would not be entirely destroyed, sustaining the line of Abraham from which the Messiah would come. And through that line, God gave the ultimate provision for mankind. What provision does mankind need most? If you were to ask someone what they needed God to provide, you may hear many examples of worldly provisions. I wish God would give me that new job I want. I wish I could buy that house. I wish I had that new car, etc. But you'd also find some deeper requests for God's provision. I wish God would provide and heal my broken marriage. I wish God would end the turmoil in my family. I wish God would provide that job so I can feed my family. I wish God would heal my child dying of cancer. And while many of these things are important and should be prayed for, is that what we need most? Is what we need most the new job, the new house, the restored marriage, the healed cancer? What we need most is for our sins to be forgiven our disobedience to be forgiven against a holy God. What we need most is to be delivered from the sinfulness of our hearts and be made alive. What we need most is for God to provide a substitute on our behalf. We need someone who could live the life of perfect obedience we were supposed to live and to die the death we were supposed to die as a result of our disobedience. Is God faithful to provide that for us? Just as God provided a ram in substitute for Isaac, so too does he provide a sacrificial ram as a substitute for our sins. God, being rich in mercy, made a way of salvation for us while we all deserved his wrath. Christ is the substitutionary ram to us. Like Isaac, we were bound on the altar of God's wrath, awaiting the final death blow of judgment. But Jesus intervened, becoming the sacrificial offering in our place, bearing the great wrath of the Father that we so justly deserved. He, like the ram, takes the place for those who so deserved to be slaughtered. Jesus lived a life in perfect obedience to God, and he died the death we deserved, so that his perfect obedience could be imputed and given to us, those who are thoroughly disobedient. He, Jesus Christ, becomes our substitute. God is the great provider, making a way of salvation through the spilled blood of our Lord. As John the Baptist faithfully proclaimed in John 1.29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like the ram caught in the thicket, Jesus took our place so we could be reconciled to the Father. God is faithful to provide even to sinners such as us. He is faithful. God the Father killed his only son, the one whom he loved, so that sinners like us could be welcomed into his kingdom. The relationship that was once broken in the garden is now restored through the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ. We are brought back into a right relationship with him, now as sons and daughters of the king. And now we can finally see him as trustworthy and faithful, and thus worthy of our obedience. The provision of Christ is our substitute. Our ram deals with mankind's greatest need, our own sin. This act of pure grace on our behalf reveals God's incredible faithfulness to provide for undeserving sinners like us. We did nothing to deserve it, but yet God proves faithful amid our unfaithfulness. As Paul says in Romans 5, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, being the sacrificial ram in our provision, is faithful to redeem us and give us new identities as sons and daughters of the living God. With these new identities, knowing God as our good and faithful Father, we are now equipped to trust and obey God completely, just like Father Abraham. Abraham knew God and obeyed him as a result. We now know God 
and we are called to faithfully obey him as a result. And if that weren't good enough, being sons and daughters of our Father and his eternal kingdom, the text reveals rewards, both temporal and eternal, for those living lives of loving, Abraham-like obedience. What are those blessings? Let's look at point number three, the faithful reward, verses 15 through 19. With the trial now complete, Isaac spared and the ram offered in his place, God comes again to Abraham and reaffirms the covenant that he has made. This will be the final account that we have in the scripture of God speaking to Abraham. And in their final dialogue, God summarizes the covenant he has already made, adding a few descriptives to highlight the magnificence of the fulfilled covenant. God starts by swearing by himself as the ultimate authority that what he said, is saying, and will say is true. There is no greater standard to swear by. God swears by himself. God is the one orchestrating and sustaining the covenant because he is faithful. Whatever he says will surely come to pass. He is faithful and true. So let's look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. What are the blessings that God will provide to Abraham for his obedience? Look again in verse 17. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. The offspring that Abraham have will be incredibly numerous, both physically through the nation of Israel and spiritually through Christians, the true children of Abraham. The analogy of the stars in heaven and sand on the shore, that this will not just be a large number, but it will be an incalculable mass of offspring deriving its roots from Abraham. Continuing on, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And this is alluding to Israel's numerous victories over the hostile nations, and it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his church. The enemy is promised to be destroyed once and for all through the offspring of Abraham. In verse 18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Through the Messiah, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would hear the gospel of salvation by grace through faith and be saved. The blessings of this covenant are made to Abraham because of his faithful obedience to God, trusting in his promise and provision. And while the blessings for Abraham's obedience are spectacular, the fulfillment of this covenant far surpass anything that Abraham could have imagined. Through the obedience of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is promised. Through the obedience of the Messiah, the covenant made to Abraham is fulfilled, ushering in the new covenant by which all mankind can be saved by grace through faith. For all those who come to our Lord by grace through faith, Abraham's true offspring are saved through the obedience of Jesus Christ and are welcomed into the new covenant that he so richly provides. Through our faith in the covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, all the blessings of Abraham's covenant are fulfilled and they become ours as well. We, the church, are the multiplied offspring of Abraham. As numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, through the substitutionary work of the Messiah in our place, we become the true children of Abraham. We, the church, possess the gates of our enemies, sin and death. Through Christ's death and resurrection, sin and death have been destroyed, and being united with Christ means that we have victory over sin and death as well. We have been set free to live not for sin, but for righteousness and loving obedience to God. And lastly, we the church are the very evidence of the nations being blessed by Abraham's offspring. Jesus, as the fulfillment of Abraham's offspring, makes salvation available to all who repent and believe in him. He is bringing together a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, we have become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The ultimate reward 
is that we are in the covenant. The covenant blessings through Christ are now our own. The blessings of this covenant are so vast and so great that they're too much to comprehend. If we were to think about it, they're too much to comprehend. How loving and gracious is God that he would provide such blessing to us, such horrible sinners, that he would give us new life and redeem us and then bless us. It's too much. It's too much. So amazing. So how do you know that you will get this reward? How do you know? How do you know if you are in the blessed promise? The reward goes only to those who put their faith in Christ alone to save. Only to those who trust in the Messiah who took their place. And your faith in Christ will be evident by your obedience to his word. We will know we are in the new covenant by the profession we make and the fruit that we bear as a result. Is your profession validated by your obedience? Are you striving to live in complete and total obedience to that which is God, God has called you to regardless of the cost? Abraham proved his faith by trusting and being totally obedient to God, even if it would cost him his only beloved son and the promised covenant that would come through him. He proved his faith by being obedient to God when it cost him everything. We too prove our faith and our trust and our obedience to God. We are known by our fruit. And my friends, if we live a life of disobedience, constant disobedience, no trust in God, it may mean that we truly don't know him and are not part of the new covenant. 1 John makes this very clear in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We're not saved by religious obedience. We're not saved by our own righteousness, as Ephesians 2 makes very clear. But if we make a profession of faith and do not trust and obey God, it is likely that we are not truly saved nor in the covenant. James 2 also makes this point, referencing Abraham, claiming that faith without works is dead. James 2, 18 through 23. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Just as Abraham's faith was made evidence by his obedience to God, so too will our faith be evident by our obedience to God. It's a daily striving in love to obey God and all that he commanded. We will stumble and fall along the way. We will seek forgiveness and be forgiven by God. He's gracious to forgive. But by his grace, we are sustained and empowered and called to live in obedience to him. When we strive to live in faithful obedience to God, it not only affirms our faith as Abraham's was affirmed, but we will grow to love and trust God more and more every single day. Oftentimes, that obedience will cost us, but we can faithfully obey because we know that God is trustworthy in all he says and calls us to do. We are called to complete obedience to God regardless of what it may cost us. In closing, this life, in this life, we will face many tests of our own faith. We will face many trials. It's guaranteed. Some will be small. Others will be much larger. But they undoubtedly will come. And in light of our study of this passage, my closing question to you is how will you respond when your faith is tested? How will you respond when you find yourself in the season of trial? Will you walk in obedience as Abraham did, trusting God alone? Or will you disobey God, trusting yourself or trusting the world? In the day-to-day battles with sin, will you give in to temptation 
or will you wage war against it and trust in God? When your friends and family pressure you to disobey God and engage in sinful activities of the world, will you listen to them or will you listen to God? When those closest to you leave and it feels like you're all alone, will you turn to the things of this world and fill the void with drugs, alcohol, or self-indulgences? Or will you hear the words of our Lord and find comfort in his faithful provision? When you feel like all is dark and hopeless, you've lost everything, you're at your wit's end, will you listen to the voices of darkness telling you to give up and forsake God? Or will you say amid the sorrow, even though you take everything from me, Lord, still I will trust in you. Still I will ever obey you. You are faithful. You are trustworthy. You provide me with all my needs and so much more. And though following you may cost me everything, all that I have, all of who I am, even that which is most dear to me, my hope is in the God who provides Yahweh Yahweh. I will trust you. I will trust you, Lord. Would that be your response? I pray so. I pray that's the response for all of us in the trials that we face. God has called us to complete obedience to him regardless of the cost, even if it means giving up that which is most dear to us, giving up our Isaacs. We can do this because God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God loves and provides for his children so much more than we will ever know. If you have been united to Christ by faith, you are a son of or daughter of God. He is your father, and you can trust him no matter how difficult the request or how costly the obedience. So examine your heart. What things in your life are hindering you from obeying God completely? What's holding you back from trusting in him? Take those things and offer them up to God, asking that he would mortify the desires of your flesh and make you fully obedient to him. Trust alone in the provision that was made on your behalf to cleanse you from your sin and live in great faith and obedience to him. We can trust and obey him because he provides for his own. He alone is faithful and true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it is a, a high calling one that we on our own and in our flesh cannot do. And yet as we saw through the faithful provision of Christ our Lord, we are made a new creation. We are brought into the kingdom, made sons and daughters of the king. And we are empowered and filled by your Holy Spirit to now live in obedience to you. Father, help us to see the great love that you had for us to save us while we were yet sinners and let that motivate us to live a life of complete sacrificial obedience. Regardless of the cost, Father, help us to see you as infinitely worthy. Help us to see this life as short and fleeting, but eternity as lasting forever. We praise you and thank you for being a God who provides for being a God who provides to sinners like us. Help us to trust and obey you every moment of every day until you come again or call us home. We depend upon you, and you are so gracious to provide. We pray all this in your name. Amen.